So, as Helen said, we're going to start up our series again today. And uh, as you know, we had a break over Christmas where we had a look at our Christmas series, and then we did five weeks of vision just in terms of helping us understand the things that God has called us to. And so it is a joy to get back um, to preach to you this morning. I'm going to read the portion we're going to look at. Then I thought it would be helpful just to frame these verses in the context of what we've already done. And because it was two, two months ago, I'm just going to do a very brief um, refresher of how we've got to this point in chapter 8. So the first three verses of chapter 8 say this. Now about, pools, uh, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by Him. Just a wonderful, wonderful, rich three verses that we're going to look at. But just remember, just the context to frame these verses for us this morning. Remember, this is Paul writing to a church that he knows very well. Uh, he lived in Corinth for about 18 months, um, from the autumn of around AD 50 to the spring of AD 52. So this is within uh, 20, 30 years of Jesus, um, his ministry. Remember, Corinth was an ancient port city. It was a center for travel, for culture, and it was a strategic place for Paul to plant. And he went there on his second missionary journey after he had been in Thessaloniki. Anyone been to Thessaloniki? It's a great city. I've been there a number of times. Such a cool place. Go and visit Greece. Um, after Athens, he, um, he, he, Corinth was the, the second most important cultural city, important intellectual city in the ancient world. And it prided itself in its wisdom. It prided itself in its knowledge. And as we know, there were many, many uh, pagan temples in Corinth, both Greek and Roman. And uh, many people went to worship there. It was a center for worship in the ancient world where people would go specifically to worship uh, pagan gods and goddesses. And one of these goddesses was Epaphrodite, the goddess of love. And she was worshipped, and what, part of the way that she was worshipped was ritual prostitution in the temples. Um, there's some debate now as to how much th that happened, but it certainly did happen. And so over a period of time, Corinth also became a place of sexual tourism in the ancient world. And people would go there, and part of what they did was they would, they would uh, sexually uh, live out whatever they wanted to do. And so um, to call a man a Corinthian in the ancient world was a way of ridiculing someone as being immoral. And in ancient Greek plays, uh, Corinthians were often shown as being drunk, as being out of control, and they were called, that, that, to be a Corinthian was not a compliment, right? It was like a sense of your life was out of control and you were giving it to all the vices that you could. And so in Acts 18, we know that Paul lived and worked in Corinth and he knew the city inside out. And as he talked to people and he just lived his life as a tent maker, he, he, many people came to faith and this church was birthed. And so a couple of years after Paul had been in, um, in Corinth, he went to other cities to plant other churches. And when he was in Ephesus, which is about, we think, uh, AD 53, he starts getting reports back from the Corinthian church that things are not going well. And it seems that this church was simultaneously a pride for Paul. It was full of spiritual gifts. Um, in fact, in chapter 1, he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift. 
Um, but it's also a church that is plagued by all sorts of problems. So it simultaneously seems to be a church that Paul was thrilled about and a, Paul that, uh, a church that Paul was absolutely concerned about. Because in, in Acts chapter, sorry, not in Acts, in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, he says to them, actually, your meetings are doing more harm than good. Isn't that an interesting thing for someone to say? When I come into your church, your meetings do more harm than good. And he says they're so out of control in terms of how they're expressing the gifts of the Spirit that he says in verse 23, when people come into your meetings, they're going to say you're out of your mind. So this is the kind of tension that Paul's living in. This church, very gifted, very full of spiritual gifts, but in a sense not knowing how to use those gifts. And so this is the reality of the church in Corinth. And so the church, uh, the letter that Paul writes to the church is broken into five main sections. I'm just going to briefly help us to get back to Acts chapter 8, but here's the summary of the five, five sections that um, Paul writes about, and these really help us to live today in a way that the gospel speaks into every area of our lives. It speaks into our relationships, it speaks into our family, it speaks into our communities, how we relate to each other, it speaks into our work, and the gospel speaks into every area of our lives. It's not just being about getting saved. You know, sometimes people say, preach the gospel. In other words, you must preach to get people saved, and that's a necessary part of what we do. Absolutely, that we understand what salvation is. But as Tim, Tim Keller says, the gospel is not only the ABC of the Christian life, how to get saved. It's also the A to Z of the Christian life. It's how to live. It's how to live in your marriage. It's how to parent. It's how to conduct yourself at work. The gospel speaks into every single area of our lives. And that's what Corinthians helps us to see. So in the first four chapters, remember, Paul addresses the problem of disunity in the church. There's division. After he left, other teachers came into the church, like Peter and Apollos, who were very gifted uh, people. But unfortunately, people in the church began to take sides and say, well, I like Peter. I, I don't like Apollos. And Paul, I don't like at all. And they'd become groupies around these different preachers. And um, they'd started talking badly about other people that they didn't like as, as the leaders. And Paul is sarcastic and sharp in his rebuke. And he basically says, you have to be kidding me. You're not really going to get into that as a church, are you? The church is not about a popularity contest. The church is a community of people, of believers, drawn together, centered around Jesus. And anyone who leads in the church is simply a servant of Christ. So while you might prefer one person and their style over another, the church is not, it's not worth it to divide the church over um, how people speak or how they lead. All these gifts are yours, he says. Enjoy all of them. Right? So the first four chapters, that's the kind of thrust of those chapters. In, cha in chapters 5 to 7, Paul gets specific about sexual issues in the church, sexual behavior, both inside and outside of marriage, and how we conduct ourselves sexually. And it starts with um, the fact that there were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy was sleeping with his stepmother, and people who were worshiping in the temples were still engaged in ritual prostitution. And uh, there were people in the church that said, oh, this is actually okay. Uh, there's no bounds to the grace of God. We're all under the grace of God. God forgives us. And so it's, it's absolutely fine that we behave like this because we're under the grace of God. And Paul absolutely says, uh, categorically, with the gospel in hand, it's absolutely not fine. Actually, what you do with your body as a Christian is absolutely important. Sexual integrity is one of the primary ways 
that we respond to Jesus' love and Jesus' grace in our lives is how we conduct ourselves sexually, and it's actually very important what you do with your body. And he, put, he relates it back to the resurrection, and he says, he says actually, um, one day our physical body is going to be resurrected and glorified, and that's a wonderful thing we look forward to. But it does mean now that you, how you conduct yourself in your body right now is so important. It's really important what you do. Uh, it's not your body anymore. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so why would you unite yourself with a prostitute if you are a believer and Christ is living in you? And so this is the kind of thing that he addresses very directly in those chapters. And he also talks about marriage and how we are condu conduct ourselves sexually in marriage. And he's being super clear, being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. And that's a particular challenge for us as believers, isn't it, in the 21st century, where we live in a culture that just says, say yes to everything, and say yes to every sexual encounter that you can, and live your life, enjoy yourself. Yeah, it's a particular challenge. And we're going to look at something of that this morning as Paul speaks about food uh, in, in chapter 8 to 10. Uh, but just to say in chapters 11 to 14, he starts to talk about their weekly worship and how they need to look at that. And lastly, in ch from chapter 15 onwards, he talks about the resurrection in particular and how it is the basis of what we believe as Christians. So chapter 8 is kind of, get, we're getting towards the middle of the book, and now he talks about food. So he says this, now about food, sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by him. So let me just start in verse one. Now about food sacrifice to idols. Um, there was a specific way that temples operated and in the pagan altars, uh, that whatever's offered up on the pagan altars was normally divided into three portions. One portion was offered up in honor of whatever God the, the, the uh, sacrifice was being made to. One portion was given to the priest to take home and eat, and the third portion was given back to the worshiper. And so you can imagine that a lot of people made sacrifices. There was a huge amount of meat left for the priests. So often the priests, there would be a temple restaurant in these, in these, um, these uh, temples, and uh, the priest would take the leftover meat and offer it into the meat market. And so there was like a discounted meat market that came from the, from the uh, pagan temples. So you know everyone loves a bargain. Isn't that true? Even in the ancient world, and they wanted a bargain. So they would go to the temple, um, uh, the temple uh, market to buy food, um, and especially to buy meat. And so this posed particular problems for Christians, which we're going to look at. But, um, so it's not really about food preferences. It's not really about what style of food you like. But rather the issue here is about meat that's specifically been offered in a pagan sense as an animal sacrifice to some Greek or Roman god. And so if you're a Christian housewife, you would go to the meat market, and the problem came obviously that as people bought meat, they weren't quite sure where the source of the meat had come from, and it became problematic for some of the believers. And especially those that came from a Jewish background, uh, it was a particular problem for them, and also then obviously as more Gentiles were saved, they were also coming out of that culture. And so that was a primary problem that Paul is trying to address. Okay, well, how do we handle this? And what does it mean for us? And there were other, there were other um, issues associated with eating and drinking in Corinth. Corinth was like the Ibiza of the modern world. It's where people went to party. 
Everything happened in the, the temple. So, for example, if you were getting married, you get married in the temple. If you were going out for a meal with your, your, your friends and family, you would generally meet at one of the temple restaurants. Um, and at the same time, people knew that there was immorality that happened in the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, temples. And so this worship of idols so saturated the Corinthian society that idol temples were integrated into every aspect of their lives. So offering up a sacrifice to an idol was a near universal experience for any Greek or any Roman, as much as it was you went to a birthday party in the temple, you went to a business meeting in the temple, you went to a wedding, you went to a funeral, all in the temple. And so really, Christians who refused to enter the temple in any way were really also penalizing themselves socially. So where else do you meet with your friends? Where else do you hang out? Where else do you go and get a meal? together if you can't go to the temple. So this was really very important issue that Paul is um, addressing here. It was part of normal life. And so they were asking things like, how should I engage with other people in my culture that are not Christian? Or should I go to the temple to celebrate with my friends, knowing that it's likely to also include some things that I don't really want to be part of? Uh, is it okay for me to eat meat offered to an idol? Is there perhaps some demonic curse upon this meat that I'm going to get ill if I eat this meat? Uh, can I eat meat that's been purchased at the temple if I, if I don't even know it was purchased there? What about if I go into someone's home and they offer a meal to me, and how do I know that it's not meat been sacrificed to an idol? And so these were really, really real questions that they were looking at. And you might think, you say, okay, Ant, well, what, what on earth does this have to, to, to do with me today? Well, I think when I look at 21st century Britain, we're still, ask, we're still asking the same kind of questions, aren't we? Really do, not specifically about meat, but how, for example, uh, when you get saved and you come out of a particular background and culture, how much do you continue to engage with people from your past that are not saved? Yeah, these are very real questions for people. What if I'm invited into a social context by my mates, which I don't want to engage with anymore? because God has transformed me from the inside. How do I handle that? What if, what if I'm married to a uh, invited to a wedding and I'm not particularly happy with how it's gonna work out and how do I handle that? Uh, this is still a real question for every believer uh, today. Uh, how do I connect and continue co to connect with my unsaved friends um, when they don't value anymore what I value and perhaps what they watch, what they listen to, what they interact with uh, on the internet is not what I would choose to interact with and listen to and engage with. How do I continue to be salt and light? How, 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 how do I continue to be someone that is in the world, but not of the world, speaking into the context, speaking into the culture, loving people, and not at the same time getting involved in a situation that I don't really want to be involved in? Yeah? Because it's not going to do me good. These are real, real issues. Anyone identify with this? Yeah, we all struggle with this every single day. How can I engage in a meaningful way that's going to be transformative in my friends' lives without getting caught up in all the stuff? Yeah? At work, when you're kind of around guys that are just have a completely different worldview and are just about making money, smashing people to get up the corporate ladder, and you are, you are a Christian, and you are, this is your world, Monday to Friday. How do you engage with it? How, how, do you, how do you be a light in, in that context? How do you be salt there? 
in a way that's going to be point people to Christ. This is a very real thing. And so I want to just remind you here very simply this morning, and again, I wish I could say there are rules, but there are no rules. And that's the thing. To walk by the Spirit, to walk by the Holy Spirit is much more nuanced, and it requires of us as believers every situation we go into to ask some questions about ourselves, the people we're trying to engage with, and what the Spirit wants us to do. That's a much more complicated thing. And this is really what Paul does. He points people back to the gospel and how they respond to all of these things, all of these questions. And he says, in particular, he says, well, if you know that there is uh, an idol involved, then don't, don't get involved with that directly. Um, so he points them back and he says, our first allegiance in all things as Christians is to Jesus as Lord. Yes, Jesus is the Lord of my life and he has ultimate say in what I engage with. And for us as 21st century believers, that's the, that's the, the big picture. Jesus is Lord of our lives as 21st century Christians. And that changes everything. It changes how we engage with people, how we think about the world. And Paul points them back to that very fact. And he says, so if you're going to eat meat and you're not aware of being any uh, idolatry being involved, eat the meat without any, any question of conscience. Don't worry about it. Just get on and live your life. But he adds as well that if you know that this, you're in a specific situation where this meat has been sacrificed to a god and you are at a pagan festival and if you eat that meat and people are watching you, they think then to be a Christian means you can... You can worship Jesus, and you can also worship these other idols, then that's a problem. Then in that situation, don't eat the meat. Yes? And so this is very practical. Like, I, I, I believe the Bible is, in, in, the, in our context, is, is very clear about things like alcohol. It says, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. So that means as a Christian, every time you have a drink, you have to think. In this context, is this helping other people if I have a beer? Or is this not helping them if I have a beer? Yes? It's gone very quiet in here. <laughs> so when I go to Eastern Europe, for example, because alcohol is such a problem in some of the places we go to, I don't choose if there are other Christians around, I will not have a beer. Because it's not going to do them good if they see me having a beer. All right? But with my mates, when I'm going to watch the rugby like I did yesterday... I happily have a beer with my mates watching the rugby. Yes, because it's a different context. And that's really what Paul is saying. And um, this is going out on the live stream into the, the ether there. So I'm probably offending lots of people out there. Sorry. You see, the point is Paul is saying some of these people in the church, they felt so liberated under the grace of God that they said to go to any kind of festival and to be involved in any kind of function is absolutely fine, and I can eat whatever I like, I can drink whatever I like, because I know this meat, this idol has no power, and it's being sacrificed to a powerless idol, so I'm absolutely free. That's, that's the point. And Paul is saying, yes, you are free in Christ, absolutely, but don't use your freedom to make other people stumble. And if it's hard for someone else that you do this, then don't do it. Love is the thing that you should be considering above everything. And do you notice that Paul quickly goes on to uh, say that, to qualify. He says, yes, these idols are pieces of wooden stone. That's true. But if there's anyone who misunderstands your actions and how you behave, don't eat the meat. Yes? 
And that should be a guide for all of us. And do you notice that? So, so, so he, he underlines and says, if you are a, new, a new, new human in Christ, if you are new being in Christ, you are free to follow your conscience in all things, but it's a nuanced thing. It's not a rule-based thing. You have to really think, Jesus, what do you want me to do by the power of the Holy Spirit in this situation? How do you want me to behave? What's going to do good to everyone in this context? Should I withhold or should I partake? Yeah, much, much more subtle. And again, the core principle he appeals to is love. Do you notice that? Love always denies itself and looks out for the well-being of other people. That's one of the core, core parts of, of love, so a motivation for us. We withhold out of love because we know it's not going to do someone else good. We withhold because love determines that we do that. And that's why in the context of these verses, do you not notice that Paul says in verse 2, he puts love above knowledge. He says, we know we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Yes? And that's a powerful thing for us to remember. We're always trying to build others up. It's not about knowing stuff. It's not about being right. It's not about always winning the argument. Remember the, the Greek um, guys were, were fascinated with wisdom. Sophia, they were fascinated with knowledge, gnosis. It was a pursuit in ancient Greek to be known as, uh, Greece to be known as being wise and full of knowledge and understanding the world. Paul says that kind of knowledge just makes you proud. And when you're proud, you don't love other people. You just impose your view on them and you say, this is how it's going to be. And that's not loving, says Paul. He says, the heart of your, your life must be a life motivated by love. And so there were the a large group of people in the church that were very proud that they knew a whole lot of stuff. And they had become puffed up, and that's what he, the language that he uses. And he says, they'd been so satisfied in themselves, like we are all sorted, we understand all the stuff, idols don't have power, we can go to any feast we like, we are free in God's grace. And that we don't really care what it might do to other people. We're free. Paul says, if you are demonstrating that through your life, that's the kind of knowledge that is puffing you up. And when you are puffed up, you lack compassion for other people that don't see things like you see them. And that's the point. You lack compassion, become judgmental. Helen's doing some studies, and we're talking about what she's talking about. And it's very interesting that there's a pushback in our culture in terms of how people see salvation. And one of the root causes of why they're pushing back about sacrifice and Jesus and how his death and resurrection saves us is because they've come from a Christian culture that is so legalistic and so judgmental and condemning and so unloving that they cannot possibly see that God would, is angry with sin, wants to deal with it. Because they've experienced so much judgment and anger from other Christians that they think, well, this can't be the gospel. We, we need to be careful in how we live and actually how the Holy Spirit guides us that in our lives we are not judgmental and condemning when we are speaking about sin. We are loving, always redemptive, always thinking of the good that God has for that person, not tolerating the sin. God doesn't do that with us, does he? 
I've said this a couple of weeks ago. When God prays for me, he's not saying, I have messed up again, the idiot. You know how many times Jesus, Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus saying to God the Father, you know how many times I've, I've spoken to him in private, Jesus, and he's still a uh, father, and he still messes it up day after day after day. Jesus doesn't pray for me like that. He doesn't pray for you like that. He's right now interceding for us saying, Jesus, help this, this man. He's weak. Help him. Let your spirit come inside and make him strong on the inside that he makes the right choices, that he behaves well. Come on, people. This should encourage us. That's how Jesus is praying for you. That's how he's praying for me. And we need to extend that same grace to others. Not hellfire and brimstone. People, people do know hellfire and brimstone. But they need to be pointed to the love of Christ. The love that washes away their sin while not tolerating the sin. And so that's what Paul does. He says, love is above knowledge. And how you use your freedom must be in a way that is good for others who might be struggling. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but only love builds up. Then the second thing he does, he warns them against pride. You see in verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Isn't that interesting? In other words, these people were boasting about the liberation that they had. And Paul says, if you boast like that, you haven't really fully discover, discovered the gospel yet in your life. You haven't really fully discovered the depth of gospel because the real knowledge of the gospel is that love works out itself into the lives of other people in a way that is good for them and not just good for you. That's what he's saying. That's the kind of knowledge of the gospel. To truly know the gospel is then you are motivated. What is good for this person? What is good for Nicolene? Not just what is good for me. You have your, yourself sorted and you have your life sorted and you're perfect, but you're judgmental and you're uncompassionate towards other people. And it's just like, these people. Paul's saying that's not even knowing the gospel. Because if you truly know the gospel and how much God has lavished his forgiveness on you, what's your automatic response to everyone else? You want that same grace and love to be lavished on them. And you're not withholding it from them because God has been so kind to you, so you give it away to other people and you forgive. And you think the best. And you love unconditionally. Yes? Very quiet. So that's what Paul says. He says, don't be proud in your knowledge. Just let love transform you so that you can do good for others, not what is just good for you. And lastly, he says of this great privilege that is higher than knowledge. He says, whoever loves God, that's the highest thing to love God, is known by God. There's something much higher than knowledge, gnosis, than wisdom, much higher than that, and that's knowing God, that you truly know him as your father, that you have this relation with him, with a relationship that is intimate, that your heart is soft and open to the Holy Spirit. That truly is the highest kind of knowledge, that Jesus is your treasure, that God is your treasure, that you live for him, that's higher than any knowledge, higher than any wisdom, higher than knowing any good thing is the knowledge that your Father in heaven loves you and knows you. And as you love him, he shows more and more and more of his love to you. And it con 
continues to transform your heart, and you continue to see people more and more differently because your heart is being changed by the love of God that is lavishing on you. And you can't help but see other people differently. And you can't help being more patient and kind. <laughs> I'm looking at Helen because she's had to be very patient and kind with me over many years. I'm, I think I'm getting, I'm getting better. <laughs> and vice versa. This is true. The greatest treasure in the world is when God shows us how much he loves us how, and, and how much his heart is towards us. And as we know him like that, he continues to pour his love on our lives. And he, as he pours his love on our lives, we continue to know him more. And it's like this wonderful cycle of something that builds us up continually from the inside. And then it affects how we love other people. And then we are able to say no to certain things that we are free to do. Because we know it's going to be good for the majority of people if I don't do that. Love constrains us for the good of others, even though we are completely, completely free. Amen? And this is what Paul says. This is why this book is called The Way of Love. Love is right at the center. Love for God, love for each other, love for his church, his bride. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's stand. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to just rest upon us, seal these things in our hearts that we truly would learn to love Him and love each other and not get puffed up in what we know, but that we live from a place that builds other people up from a place of love. Amen? You got something, Johnny? Good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just want to thank you so much for your goodness, your grace. Thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you for the cross. Thank you for every good thing that you lavish on our lives. You are good in every way. And Jesus, I want to ask that you'd come by your spirit. Thank you that you are here, that you've been with us right from the first moment that someone greeted us at the door. We have known your presence. And thank you for the amazing sense of your presence here this morning. And we ask now that you would come and seal this in our hearts. That we truly would live from a place of love that considers others. That we would not just cookie cut our lives. That we would consider every single situation uniquely and do what is good to see others built up and others pointed to Christ. Help us as we live. Lord, we don't always get it right, but help us. In your precious name we pray. And now we ask, Lord, that you come as we worship, that you would just settle our hearts by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.